Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. It might seem like the world has a lot of COVID-19 vaccines, so many that there are more vaccines than people actually willing to take them. We've got to get past the headline of that, that there are plenty of vaccines. As we look at the global perspective on all of this, are we getting vaccines to the right people in the right places? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. So what if I told you that over 70% of those vaccines produced last year were bought by wealthy and upper middle income countries? Less than 1%, less than 1% have gone to low income countries. How do we fix that global supply chain when it comes to vaccines to get them to the people who need them most? Uh, Professor uh, Prashant uh, Yadav has joined us, uh, an affiliate professor uh, of business in France. He's a lecturer uh, on uh, global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's a fellow at the Center for Global Development. He also works on healthcare supply chain uh, issues with governments and global organizations. And Professor Yadav, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure so, to be here. So, so let's break this down just a little bit. I, I think a lot of people uh, would really think again and be surprised that uh, there are so many vaccines out there, and yet we're really not making a whole lot of progress, it seems, on getting them to lower-income countries and, and individuals. Yeah, so last year we produced um, about 10 billion doses of COVID vaccines collectively amongst the multiple manufacturers. Uh, and that makes people think 10 billion is, is 10 billion doses is quite a number that should be sufficient to at least vaccinate a large portion of the global population. But the reality, as you pointed out, is they are very unevenly distributed. And, you know, countries such as Nigeria or many other countries in, uh, in Africa, which are um, unable to access vaccine supplies, their vaccination coverage rates are still lower than two, three percent. They've gradually improved in the last month, but despite that, they've been very low. And part of the reason is that the total manufacturing capacity is still highly insufficient to meet global supply, uh, especially in scenarios where we need booster doses or uh, third and fourth doses potentially for immunocompromised patients in high-income countries. So uh, having more manufacturing capacity is the need of the hour. And I think we've also got to keep in mind that having more capacity should not be a reason to worry. Even if we end up having excess capacity and those plants remain somewhat underutilized in the medium term, that's okay. Because for every single vaccine dose that we can administer, society as a, as a collective gains thousands of dollars through economic and health benefits. Uh, but uh, having excess capacity is not the way we are currently operating this global supply chain. Uh, again, this is not 
the task that individual firms can carry out. This is something that collectively governments of G7, G20, the high-income countries of the world, uh, have to help create for the world. Yeah, and uh, you pointed out in a a piece you wrote last year for Harvard Business Review, you talked about four specific strategies to boost the global supply uh, and how that's flowing, as you mentioned. Are we getting them to the right places? Tell us just a little bit about what we should be trying to get rolling, uh, some strategies to actually boost where we're actually delivering those vaccines. So two broad categories of things that need to happen. One, like I just said, we need more manufacturing capacity. We need it of the right types of vaccines. Not Vaccines are not commodities. There are some um, inactivated virus vaccines which have not worked as well. And countries which administer two doses of that are now switching to a third dose of a, a messenger RNA or other types of vaccines. So we need the, the capacity for the right kinds of vaccines. Uh, Secondly, we need it in the right kinds of places. It's not okay to have it all concentrated in the U.S. and in Western Europe, in India and China. Uh, Some capacity needs to be in Africa, Latin America. How to keep that capacity sustainable so that it's not just a a one-shot investment that then decays over time uh, is the need and the question of the hour. Then I think just manufacturing and more supply is not sufficient. We also need to think about matching demand with supply. And that means we need to bring in delivery and distribution infrastructure, better planning uh, to be happening at individual country level, uh, and, and also installation of freezers and fridges. All of these things are happening, but I think the pace at which we want them to happen is probably slower than Uh, what is desirable or what is optimal. Uh, And the third, of course, is we need to create demand. And there are places in the world where uh, there isn't sufficient demand for COVID vaccines, and that creates a demand supply mismatch. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to ask you just uh, very quickly, Professor, uh, some of the regulatory environments around the world have also been problematic or slowed down the process. What do we need to do in that space? Yeah, so... Vaccines which are approved by the World Health Organization or pre-qualified by the World Health Organization, they usually have had a a somewhat easier regulatory pathway. Uh, But for other vaccines, it has not been the case. And even for those which are pre-qualified by the WHO, I think there are several smaller steps uh, required by country regulators in individual countries. And, And those are things which oftentimes end up becoming bottlenecks. So that's on the drug regulatory Side. Then there are also other regulatory issues, uh, which are oftentimes related to having the right indemnity in place, which companies seek before they can uh, launch or get their product out in a country. Uh, so a, a range of factors, not easy to point fingers and say national governments are not doing their task right or firms are not doing their task right or, or the drug regulators are not doing their task right. It's just that all of those things have to converge together at the right time quickly enough, and that's essentially a collective effort between the regulator and the companies with the vaccine. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great point. This is uh, an issue that requires the, the public and private sectors to come together, uh, as you mentioned, Professor, to coordinate, to have a strategic plan, uh, to be able to move that all forward. Uh, Professor Yadav, thank you so much for joining us today. Great perspective on how do we make sure we're getting uh, these vaccines to all the right places and all the right people. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. 
so again, so important to uh, the last point the professor made, I think, is so critical that, yes, you got to have the right regulatory things in place. Uh, you, you obviously have to have materials. You have to have capacity. And then you have to have coordination, uh, both between governments, as he pointed out, and between the manufacturers, the business community that are actually producing those. Uh, and it is something that requires uh, a lot. You look at this from a global perspective. Uh, it's not an easy one, uh, but it's one we ought to think about. It's one we ought to think again about. And uh, we're going to continue to do that. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.